You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. We're now going to read uh, the Bible and we're reading between Romans chapter 6 to Romans chapter 8 in these couple of weeks. Chapter 7 Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in a new way of the spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, It used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, 
but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Chapter 8 Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Great, thank you so much for that. Is that sound okay? It's not too loud? It's great, nice and clear. It's a bit of a relief, isn't it, after last week, I have to say. Um, Yeah, so we're continuing on, continuing on in our series here in Romans, as has already been stated, and here we get to uh, chapter 7 and into chapter 8. Um, and this uh, represents sort of the, the end point of a sustained argument from Romans chapter 5 right through to 8 uh, verse 4, where uh, Paul is trying to explain um, what it means to be living by grace now, what it means to have grace on the throne, right? Remember, remember that from a few talks ago, grace on the throne Uh, leading to eternal life, as opposed to righteousness on the throne, leading to eternal life. He's particularly got in view the Jewish who's become a Christian and who rightly loves the law, and he's trying to prize their hands off the law and saying, that's not the way to live, just just let go. You've accepted Jesus Christ as Messiah, uh, and it means more than now just having someone make up for where you fail the law and to be an example of how to obey the law. No, no, no. Something much deeper, much more profound has happened in Jesus. Jesus is good news to the Gentile and to the Jew because he's a good, he's good news for sinners. That's what he is. He, he, he will rescue the worst of sinners. That's the power that he has as the Messiah to reconcile anyone, all the nations, to God. And so he's trying to get them to just get how deep, how deep this grace runs and how transformative it is and how actually radically different it is now living in Christ as opposed to living under, under law. And, and here in this passage is the, really the kind of the sucker punch of the argument, as you'll see in a moment. Here he really lands, hopefully, I think, in his mind, the final blow. Will you finally get it, I guess, is what he's thinking in the, in the back of his mind. And that's a good way, I think, of setting up that question that comes from the passage tonight, which is before us. It's up there 
are on the screen for you. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's the question before us. So he sort of argued, you know, that we're sinners, we're stuck, we need to be saved by grace. And now he wraps it up by saying, finally, who will rescue us? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Romans chapter 7, verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? I've come to this conclusion. I've realised this about myself. Remember, just pause for a second. Remember Paul was an exemplary Jew. We'll talk about this again later on in the talk. He was the one standing there approving the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, because he thought that Christianity was an anti-law sect. He has travelled so far, hasn't he? Now he's saying, oh, what a wretched man I am. I was an esteemed Jewish leader leading the charge in purging Judaism of this awful cult called Christianity. Strong in my self-righteousness. And now I've had a revelation. I'm wretched. I actually, for the first time ever, recognise how broken and sinful I am. I can see now this abyss of darkness and sin that dwells in my heart. And I've come to the point of recognising I can't help myself. I'm wretched. Who will rescue me? And he wants the Jews to come with him on this journey to see, of course, there's only one way out of this human condition. And what he particularly describes here is something that all humans experience to a greater or lesser extent here in this chapter 7 of the book of Romans. He describes this acute, you've heard this phrase, it's a cool phrase, he describes you in this passage an acute cognitive dissonance. You heard that phrase, cognitive dissonance? You know, when you're holding on to two contradictory beliefs at the same time in your brain and you just live with this tension, there are two things you hold dearly or believe with all your heart, but they actually contradict each other. Well, here he describes that experience as a human being, which we all, that is, that is the human condition. We all experience a certain cognitive dissonance in at least one area, which is universal. That is the area or the area of who we think we ought to be or who, or who we think we should be. We, we all are somebody. And we all have a picture or a vision of who we think we should be or even who, who we think we are. But we know that it jars against the person we actually are in the flesh day to day. That's a common human experience. Or to a greater or lesser extent, we all experience the tension between the two. Who I should be or ought to be and who I actually am. Listen to what Madonna says in this uh, excellent book. Madonna's a great resource for all things philosophical. Um, <laughs> Uh, it was actually a great insight, though. Listen to what she says in this book uh, by Tim Keller, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. <laughs> so here is this, here is this um, quote uh, from Madonna in a book by Tim Keller. And it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant book. Um, and listen to what she says. 
My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre, she says. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. Isn't that a sad state of being? Now, she might say, well, it's good because it's compelled me to greatness and I don't want to be ordinary. She might say that. But just living in that constant state of having to prove that you're something special to herself and to the world would kind of end up driving you mad. I wonder a bit with Madonna <laughs> if she sort of jumped the shark. I think, you know. Um, and, but, but Paul here is is describing a really extreme kind of version of, of that. And we'll look at that tonight. And he wants us to see that as well about ourselves. For him, a part of the good news is a, 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 this sort of final ability to truly recognise self. That's a part of the gospel, is that for finally you can look in the mirror and see who you actually are. Up until the gospel for Paul, he lived with a certain amount of self-deception to cope with the cognitive dissonance. And we all do that as well. We all do that. We lie to ourselves to cope with ourselves. And the law, if you really meditate upon it, just peels away the layers and the lies and the self-deception. And it's both glorious and troubling at one and the same time. So who will save me from the wretchedness of the human condition? This state of cognitive dissonance that we all live in. And Paul, um, you know, he's coming to the sucker punch, right? And he wants to say really plainly, well, to the Jew especially, I love you, not the law. Just repeating myself, we've talked about this a lot, definitely not the law, but this week in chapter 7, he ups the ante. Last week he said, you know, we, we, are, we are free from the power of sin, right? Because we have died to sin when we died in Christ 2,000 years ago. Remember that from last week? Well, this week in chapter 7, he kind of steps a bit further to what is going to really freak out a law-loving Jew. And he says, you know what? We've also died to the law. We've died to sin, but actually... In the death of Jesus, we have also died to the law. It's not appropriate any, anymore for us in Christ to live under the law or by the law. It doesn't make sense. So look here quickly at the summary here, which kind of summarises last week's talk and argument chapter 6, chapter 7, verses 4 to 6. This is kind of basically where we find ourselves in Jesus, so my brothers and sisters, verse 4 of chapter 7, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. That's dynamite for the Jew. That you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. This is the argument from last week. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what 
once bound us, that is the law, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We live by the Spirit, not by the law. So first point, it's utterly inappropriate now for the Christian to live under law in any way, shape or form. Wrong direction, bad idea. There's something you've misunderstood if that's how you're living as a Christian. Particularly if you're living under law in order to feel confidence. Definitely a dead end. Very bad idea for a Christian to live under law to feel confidence in their relationship with God. He points out the inappropriateness of that in verses 1 to 3. Look there with me in chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. If she marries another man when her husband has died, that's a good thing. We celebrate it. If she sleeps with another man while she's still married, it's a horrible thing. And it's saying here, You've died to, to the law when Jesus died 2,000 years ago. It's, it's utterly inappropriate. Can you imagine being married again, like after your first husband died, you're, you're remarried now, um, uh, but you say to your new husband, his name is uh, Bob, right? Bob, I love you, but in order to respect my late husband, my former husband, I really think you should change your name to his name. Michael, my dear Michael. <laughs> Change your name, Bob, to Michael. And he acquiesces, it's a bit weird, but he's, it's his first marriage and he's <laughs> early in it and he doesn't really know what to expect of what she's been married before she's had experience. I guess I'll just do what she says. And look, I think we should celebrate his birthday, not your birthday. <laughs> and when we have, you know, your favourite meal for your birthday, I think we should really have Michael's favourite meal because... I love him and I want to respect him. It would be so off, wouldn't it? It would be so inappropriate. And you see Paul's argument. Christian, who is still wanting to live under the law, for maybe all sorts of good reasons, seemingly good reasons, it's profoundly inappropriate. If you want to live under law as a Christian, you don't actually understand what has happened in Christ or what it means to live by the Spirit. No, we live by the Spirit. We don't live under law. That's the first. Second thing, who will save us from this wretchedness, this body of death? Well, certainly not the law if we've died to it on the cross thus freeing us from it. But here's the kind of subtlety and the nuance. But, says Paul, it's not as if the law is bad. What? No, Paul wants to say, no, 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 no. The, the law is actually really good in and of itself. There's, 
Just imagine you get to the Empire State Building, you want to get to the top, it's an amazing landmark, you want to do it, so many millions of people have done it. This is one of those great things. It might be on your bucket list, get to the top of the Empire State Building. Great goal. Someone says to you, yeah, well, the way to do it is to free Solo up the side. That's the way. And you go, but there's an elevator. <laughs> That's so stupid. I mean, that way is death. This way is that way's life, and it, and it gets me to the goal. And Paul is saying, yes, the, the, you see, the law of God reveals the righteousness of God, right? The law of God does accurately explain what it means to be holy. The law of God does uphold what is good and noble and begins to explain what it means to love God and love neighbor. And Paul says, yes, that is all good, but the law is not just isn't just revealing God's righteousness. The law is this system, right, where at the same time as revealing God's righteousness, it is also explaining a way for you to be righteous. And they're, they're intertwined so tightly, you really can't separate them out. Like which parts of the law are just generally revealing God's holy character and righteousness and which parts of the law are explaining how we can ourselves put to death sin and be righteous you actually can't tease it apart just Paul just sees it as a whole system so he wants to say this he wants to say there's really nothing wrong with the law it's a true lovely wonderful expression of God's holiness that we still want to keep in mind and have as a reference point but we can't live by the system of the law it, the system of the law doesn't work the part of the law which is saying to you you have to be holy by yourself being holy can't actually finally make us holy. This is what he explains here. Look here in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Of course not. Verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? No, not even that. It's not even that. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. So that through the commandment, sin might be, become utterly sinful. There is nothing at all wrong with the law, even its requirement that I win my righteousness. Even that is good. To, to, to be properly righteous myself by my will because I love God. That's a good thing. That's something I want. The problem is I just can't do it. It's, it's as likely as me getting to the top of the Empire State Building by doing a free solo. Like that's, that's how plausible it is. And Paul really wants you, Christian, he wants you to get this. And so then he goes on to his experience of the law to demonstrate this through personal testimony. Look here, verses 14 to verse 20. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, then I have to agree that the law is good. 
As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. What is Paul communicating here about living under law? Well, it's a hot mess. Is that what you get from that? It's just a tangled web of confused, hot mess. It doesn't work. And there's something here I really want you to get. Super important. Notice the tense here in this description. See how Paul is writing? Is he talking about the past? He's talking about the present, isn't he? He's saying this, on the face of it, it's his current lived experience. Now, this causes no end of debates, right, in, in Romans chapter 2. What is going on here? There is so much here that doesn't make sense. Number one. So I'm just telling you what the people arguing about it say, right? Number one, number one. Paul has already said he doesn't live under law. So why is he describing his experience under law if he doesn't even live under it? Number one. Number two. Number two, and actually there's only two points. So number two, <laughs> number two. Uh, but it's troubling. Number two, I, th- uh, I, I meant to look it up before, but I forgot to. I think it's in Philippians when Paul is talking about being an exemplary Jew. Does, does anyone know the passage I'm referring to when he says, you know, um, of the tribe of such and such, you know, uh, you know and he, he says in that description, um, in terms of legalistic righteousness, he says, faultless, blameless. So in that passage, when in Philippians, I think it is, when he reflects on what, what he was like as a Jew, right? Trying to speak to other Jews. He was saying, look, I am so credentialed as a Jewish person. If you wanted someone who obeyed the law to the letter, it was me. And so commentators look at that description of, or look at how he viewed himself as a Jew living under law, And he felt completely confident. He really thought he was faultless under the law, right? They look at that and they look at the present tense and the fact that he said, I no longer live in They go, what is going on here? Well, I think, if you'll permit me this, (laughs) if you'll indulge me, I think I know what's going on. I don't know. Maybe I don't. You go and look it up and read about it. I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong. But but to me, it doesn't seem like a huge mystery. I think what he's saying is, And this is super important for us to get. As Christians, and this dovetails in the next section, as Christians, the work of the Spirit, right? The work of the Spirit isn't to sort of turbo boost your ability to put death to sin. And that's how through the Spirit you're released from law. Like the Spirit comes in and gives you this ability you never had to be able to obey and then I live beyond the law now. I've left it behind because I'm kind of above it because now I can actually do it because I have the Holy Spirit living in me. No, what the Holy Spirit does because God still wants us to have agency for whatever reason, right? God still wants us to have agency. What the Spirit does is shines a spotlight on our heart and helps us to see ourselves honestly. That's what the Spirit does. 
And so the spirit comes in. And for the first time ever, now that he's free from the law, Paul can actually see how hard the law is. And so he says, I still want that righteousness of the law. But now as a Christian reflecting on the law, I'm stuffed. I see it now. Before, when I wasn't a Christian, I felt so confident. I thought that I was an exemplary Jew. I thought I obeyed it to the letter. Now I've become a Christian. I see. Oh, my gosh. There are so many ways in which I fail as I really press into it, as I really pray about it, as I earnestly, truly seek it. I see all the ways I'm completely stuffed. Do you see? He says, I want the righteousness of the law. It's good. And if I could do it, I would even want the method. That is, to be able to do it myself. Out of love and worship for God, I'd love to be able to do that. But there's this thing in me called the sinful nature. That's right alongside the spirit and they're at war and I can never get there. I can see how deep this cognitive distance really runs in my nature. I can see actually what the heart of the problem is. It's not about wanting to escape mediocrity. It's about my standing before God. It's that I want this relationship with God that I just can't get. And so the resolution there, moving on. So let's get to the answer. Who will save me from this body of death? So this is, yep, the next point. Um, Jesus Christ, of course. Jesus Christ. Through the spirit which gives life. So look what he says there. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our King. That's what it means for him to be king. Not a hard, lofty taskmaster. The person who rescues me from my broken state and my deep ingrained rebellion. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind, rightly, truly, with integrity, am a slave to God's law. Paul's not saying doing a big backflip there and saying, oh, actually, I do live by the Ten Commandments of the Lord. No, no. What he's saying is, don't you see, in Jesus Christ, I really can say now, finally, truly, honestly, at the same time as recognizing how sinful I am for the first time in my life, I can actually say, no, I truly am for the first time ever a slave to God's law. I truly have thoroughly bowed down to the law and fully met its requirements. I've done it. But in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now in the gospel, I can recognize and trust in both fully. I am a son. I am a child. I'm a legitimate law obeyer. And yet I'm deeply, darkly, profoundly sinful. I can see they're both true now. And Jesus got me. And so there he talks about life in the spirit. Then he talks about life in the spirit. This is what it means to live by the spirit, is to be in Christ. Uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the spirit who gives life 
has set you free from the law of sin and death. How does the Spirit who gives life set us free from the law of sin and death? How has the Spirit done that? Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Do you see how clear it is here? I get so frustrated. Time check. I get so frustrated uh, when I hear... When I hear well-meaning preachers or books written or people talking about this passage and they, to me, I can't believe they do this. They go, yes, we've been set free from the law and now we live by the Spirit. You see, the Spirit comes in us, like I was saying before, and empowers us now to live a righteous life. And you go, are you kidding me? You've just released us from the law and now you're putting us back under it. You're saying that we have this magical, mystical power now to be the good we've always wanted to be when that's exactly the opposite of what Paul has argued. And when it comes down to living in the spirit, he says that living in the spirit means having this connection with Jesus who's done it for us. How does the spirit set us free and give us life? Through Jesus who died for us. It says it so explicitly there, fulfilling the requirements in his body for you. What does it mean to live by the Spirit? It it doesn't mean to float above your sinfulness. For the first time ever, if you live by the Spirit, you will begin to understand how deeply sinful you are. What does it mean to live by the Spirit? First and foremost, it means you keep on leaning into Jesus. That's what it means to live by the Spirit. You see your heart, but you declare, I'm a son, I'm a daughter. Because of Jesus. The Spirit empowers you to do that. So what does it finally mean for us? And let me end here. Well, it's all about, this passage is all about ultimately identity. Paul is wanting us to understand our identity who we really are, how, how we work. A friend of mine, um, I think this really illustrates it well, a friend of mine uh, who is also in ministry, um, they've adopted a few kids. They've got a, a few uh, biological children and they've adopted two other children um, who are in really disadvantaged situations and one of them came from an orphanage. His daughter who came um, from this orphanage overseas to live with them, uh, it, I thought it was funny and touching and a bit sad when he said to me that when she first came to the house, Whenever they would have shower time, mum would take her in to have a shower. She'd go into the shower cubicle and she'd just stand up against the wall and put her hands up against the wall like this. And the reason she did that is because in the orphanage, they'd line them all up and hose them down. That was shower time. That was shower time. And even though they said to her, you don't need to do that. She still did it. It was just habitual. She was a little girl. She She was so trained to do it whenever she'd go to the shower. And it took her... Quite some time, right? To just change her behaviour. And, 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 and this is what Paul is saying. This is the way to sanctification. This is the way to Christian progress. Recognise that you, you are still a sinner. You've still got the sinful nature. But you have been adopted. In fact, it uses that language in the New Testament, doesn't it? You've been actually adopted. You have. 
And so you, before God, can say with confidence, I, I am someone who I'm kind of not. Because my life is hidden in Christ. That's the power of the Spirit at work in you. Lean into that. And the fruit of the Spirit flows. Peace, joy. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.